for the week of September 11th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 593, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the Emmy After Parties, I'm Michael Giltz. Uh, you got invited to those. I never get invited to those. Uh, you know, Sperling, we, it was our big night. We are not closer to becoming any god. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, you know who is? Uh, who? Is, is uh, Lizzo. Lizzo's, That's true. Because I think she already has a Grammy. Pretty sure she has a Grammy. And, and last night she won an Emmy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw her outside the Emmys, actually. She was on the phone with uh, Eminem and Adele. Uh, she had <laughs> heard that they, they were doing a, a Tony Award said, thing. What Tony. about me? Can I join in? Yeah. To, be, to be clear, when we joked that Adele and Eminem were doing a Broadway show together, we were joking. Somebody said, you didn't really make that clear, but we meant to. So sorry about that if anybody got confused. I doubt it. But anyway, Eminem, never going to Broadway. You say that, and now, of course, it'll happen. Adele, you can see her being on Broadway in some way, shape, or form on stage. That could happen, but there are no plans. Uh, However, I'm not really at the Emmy after parties. I'm actually at Crypt 24 at Westwood Memorial Park's Corridor of Memories. Uh, What are you doing there? Wait, yeah, what are you doing there? I am at the cemetery, which contains the body of Marilyn Monroe. And Uh, others. And and others, that's right. Dean Martin, Truman Capote, Donna Reed, all buried at Westwood Memorial Park. But Marilyn Monroe is here, and why am I here? To do some research. I've been making fun of the constant emails coming out from all the trades saying a four-minute standing ovation, a seven-minute standing ovation, a five-minute standing ovation. And Deadline sent out a new email alert. It's about the movie Blonde. And this is from the press conference. They sent out an email alert to tell us that at the press conference, Andrew Dominic, the director of Blonde, and Anna de Armas, who stars as Marilyn Monroe, sensed the ghost of Marilyn Monroe while making their biopic. Wow, that's kind of spooky. That's kind of ridiculous that they would actually (laughs) send out an email about that. It's fine they said it at the press conference. Put it in a line in your story if you want to. But really, an email alert? But what they didn't tell us was whether the ghost of Marilyn Monroe gave the film a standing ovation when it premiered, and if so, for how long? So that's why... No, I'm not really here. I'm actually in London for the arrival of the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II coming from Scotland. We are here in London to cover the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Of course, many things have come to a halt in the UK. The Crown, the TV series The Crown on Netflix, was filming the sixth and final season uh, with Imelda Staunton as the elderly Queen Elizabeth II. The fifth season is done. It will air in November Netflix is thinking people will be interested, but the country is in mourning and they have paused production. They said, yeah, no, we really probably shouldn't film scenes about the queen while the country is in mourning. So that has come to a pause. The whole nation has come to a pause. The queen, of course, has been in pop culture and art and film. She's a, she creates memes. She creates hip videos that are popular on YouTube with Paddington Bear and James Bond. So She's been a part of our lives in one way or another, whether you like it or not, for 70 years. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the, the entertainment, uh, I hate to say the word entertainment, but the media angle here is that, uh, protocol is that the BBC was supposed to broadcast the, the announcement, but the royal family, being very uh, progressive, actually announced her death via Twitter two minutes before the BBC made the official announcement that the Queen had died. 
Right. I don't think it was a surprise to them. They knew the family was going to put it out on social media. They didn't, you know, that that's just how you reach out to the world now. But yes, then the BB, there's a whole, every TV and radio station, there are blue lights apparently that blink when there's a crisis, a major, major crisis. You know, there's been an earthquake or a nuclear attack, or in this case, you knew the queen is dead. Radio stations have switched over to sad songs. Television is playing it by ear day to day. The BBC, of course, has been wall to wall coverage. Uh, some theaters are pausing their shows on Monday. There will be probably no West End Theater on Monday, though it's not officially said that you all must not do that. But everybody's sort of, you know, playing it by ear, figuring, seeing how the people are feeling, how much coverage they want to see. It's going to be another five, six days before we have the funeral on Monday. I will be awake at 5 a.m. because my mom loves it. And she also loves this podcast, so she wants to know, Sperling, besides Queen Elizabeth II, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, you know, the reason that everybody listens to this podcast is for quirky little unique bits of trivia. And, uh, you know, one of the, I, I used to go to that, that cemetery you're talking about in Westwood. It's right next to a movie theater that a lot of press screenings are held at. And I would always go. And you would go to the cemetery after, before, well, it's after like right a screening? Next to, it's literally right next. It's oh, like you can't help almost walking in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. Like, uh, and, you know. Harold and Maude much? Okay. Uh, the Truman Capote's uh, little uh, tomb is there. Uh, and of course there's Marilyn Monroe with the roses until about 1997, 98, when they stopped showing up. Uh, and then underneath was a blank, a blank, uh, space, space in the wall in the mausoleum. Uh, that space belongs to Hugh Hefner. He bought that so that in death, Marilyn Monroe would always be on top of him. Really? Yes. I kid you not. That's not some joke you're making. No, no. You see, you've just learned something. Congratulations. That's why you're listening to the show. A little bit of truth. He is interned at Westwood Memorial Park in L.A. in the crypt beside Marilyn Monroe, for which he paid $75,000. Quote, spending eternity next to Marilyn is an opportunity too sweet to pass up, he told the L.A. Times. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. I guess next to isn't as funny as underneath, but you'll have to take it. Yeah, I guess. Well, okay, well, that's, that is trivia, but what are we going to talk about other than the trivia we are known and loved for? Well, on Showbiz Sandbox this week, we are celebrating the Emmys. Woohoo! A, a lot of people just got one step closer to being EGOTs. That's yes. right. Yeah, except me. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we do have Emmy coverage, including streamers versus cable versus broadcasting and what the job of the Emmy should be and more. Speaking of next year's Emmys, by the way, it looks like people are really enjoying The Sandman, but House of Dragons is slipping a bit. Now, where is an update on Lord of the Rings? That's what I want to know. On Inside Baseball, we discuss the goofy comments of studio executives. A top Warner Brothers Discovery suit decided now was a good time to dismiss all the agita over Batgirl. Who cares about that movie anyway? We canceled it. And former Disney head Bob Iger gets all Yoda on us, making philosophical pronouncements about the industry and our age of great anxiety. Oh, and also movies will never be coming back, by the way. So just saying. Uh, of course, during Dead Big Yellow Big we say. Yes, <laughs> during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us on, in on last week's box office, but more to the point, to see whether he can actually pronounce the number one movie in the world this past week. 
Well, I hope I can, but that we are covering box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes. We pull information from everywhere that we can, including our listeners. And we have movies. The number one film is from India. The number two film around the world is from China. The number three film around the world is from Korea. The number four film is a Hollywood movie, but it has a big international cast. Then we have an animated film, a big patriotic flag waver from Tom Cruise, a horror flick, a Japanese animated flick, another Chinese film. Films come from all over the world, and that's why we look at the worldwide box office. And the number one movie is Brahmastra Part 1, Shiva. This is the first in a trilogy. It's from India. It was a project backed by Fox, and then, of course, Disney bought Fox, so now it comes from Disney. It's a big-budget movie, $51 million. It's a big, big budget for India. It's hoping to launch the Astroverse. (laughs) So um, it's about a DJ who has supernatural powers, he discovers, and a link to a a supernatural weapon that can destroy the universe, and he must use it for good. Uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of the Astroverse, but they're hoping we'll care. And the first one has opened to $28. million dollars worldwide so a solid start though it's definitely going to need legs in order to be a movie that can convince them to make the next two and number two around the world is a chinese comedy it's called give me five according to comscore but i think a better translation would be hey bro which is quite different. But when I look at the trailer and there's a joke about, hey, bro, calling someone bro uh, for this Chinese comedy, it's basically a ripoff of Back to the Future. I mean, it's literally a time travel comedy where a young guy goes back in time to make sure his parents get together. That's Back to the Future. But hey, bro, whatever. If it works, it works. $21 million it made on its opening week. Number three, we go to Korea. Confidential Assignment 2 International is the big new hit film in Korea. It opened to $20 million. It's the Harvest Festival in Korea. It's a big holiday. Uh, It's known as Chuseok. I believe I'm saying that right. And that's a big Harvest Festival, a big time of the year for people to hang out together and I guess akin to Thanksgiving in the sense that you're around family and friends and hey, let's go to a movie. And Confidential Assignment 2 International uh, clicked. At number four is Bullet Train, the Brad Pitt action film with a big international cast. That made $17 million this week. It's at $212 million worldwide. Still looking to hit about $270 million. So we can say that movie is a hit right off the mark from worldwide box office alone. That's certainly true for Minions, The Rise of Gru, the animated flick with the voice of Steve Carell and others, grossed another $14 million. It passed the $900 million mark, $904 million. And when Despicable Me was a big hit, I was like, okay, but I never imagined we'd have four sequels and counting. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, Tom Cruise is remarkable too. Top Gun Maverick keeps making money. Another $13 million. It, it's been on sale digitally. Uh, it's in theaters still worldwide and still making money. $1,454,000,000. The biggest hit of his career. So let me uh, get this straight. You mean it's available online. You can buy it outright and have owned it forever. And yet people are still going to the movie theater. Well, now, you know, if it was open, available day and date, that would probably cripple the box office. But it became such a big hit and people really felt like they wanted to see it on screen. And for a long time, it was only available on screen. And so that helped make it a movie that people said, I want to see it a second and third time. You do it day and date on Paramount Plus, it's not going to make that money. And people will not go to the theater as much, even for a movie that's obviously meant to be seen in theaters. But it worked there. So eventually, what's remarkable is there's a 
long, long run, number one movie in the country from Memorial Day and now again on Labor Day. That rarely happens. And so you can see this movie really clicked with audiences. So now, even though it's available online, they still want to see it in the theater. Barbarian is a hit in the theaters as well. It's a horror flick. It's like an Airbnb horror film. What happens if you book an apartment and then someone else is there too? And for some reason, you both stay there and then crazy things happen? I don't know. It cost about $10 million to make and it made $11 million on its opening week. So not a bad start. Then we have the Japanese anime film Dragon Ball Super, Superhero, $8 million this week. That's at $85 million worldwide. Then we go back to China. Moon Man, that hit film about an astronaut who thinks all life on Earth has been wiped out while he's trapped on the moon, that made another $8 million this week. It's at $437 million worldwide. I'm sort of interested to see it. As am I. I want to see that movie. And then there's DC League of Super Pets, uh, the horror flick The Invitation, Idris Elba's Beast past the $50 million mark, Where the Crawdads Sing. That is a big hit for this year so far. $122 million for the fall season for that little movie that could. Spidey No Way Home keeps making money. Jordan Peele's Nope. Yep, it's making money, but nope, not as much as it needs to to triple its budget, at least not yet. I don't think it's going to get there because I don't think there are any other big territories left for it. And a couple new movies we should mention are ones that we just learned what they're about. The Korean comedy, 645. It's a military comedy. I think it's based on a true story about... A winning lottery ticket, a $4 million winning lottery ticket that soldiers who are manning the border have, and then the wind takes it, and it flies over into the North Korean side. And then the North Korean soldiers take it like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so hijinks ensue. And uh, Life Mark is a faith-based film here in North America. That broke into the top 10, grossing $2 million. It's technically a Fathom Events movie, but it basically has a wide theatrical release and is available everywhere for at least a week, and it's making okay money. And then there's Julie Roberts and George Clooney teaming up in the romantic comedy Ticket to Paradise. That opened in very small markets overseas. It made $2 million. I haven't seen the numbers yet, but the plot I've heard about, it's about divorced parents who rush to Hawaii because they both agree their daughter, who's about to marry a guy she's only known for a week, is making a terrible mistake. Don't do the thing we did, they're saying. My God, we have to stop her. And if you can't figure out the plot of that movie, we're taking away your movie card. Uh, Let me guess. The parents get back together, reunite, and then make little baby sequels. No, that's ridiculous. I can't even imagine that. But you know, my, my daughter, actually, speaking of little sequels, uh, she, <laughs> I don't know what, what that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's going, not happy about that. Happily, she doesn't listen to the show. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she's a teenager. She doesn't listen to me at all, even when I'm talking directly to her. Uh, I was, uh, I was uh, going to reference Life Mark, which is this faith-based uh, film that Fathom uh, uh, released. They also held an event for Pitch Perfect. It's the 10th anniversary of the release of that film. My daughter went to it at the movie theater, which she said was sold out. People were standing outside trying to get in. Oh, wow. So well, that's fun that, that that happens at movie theaters, just like Top Gun Maverick. There is an appetite to see movies on the big screen. 
We're talking to you, Bob Iger, and we'll get to him in Inside Baseball. Anyway, everybody knows the story of Cineworld. Maybe she went to see that movie in Regal Cinemas, or maybe it was AMC. I don't know. But we know that the owner of Regal is Cineworld and that they were laden with debt. They kept expanding and expanding, gobbling up smaller movie chains. They're the second biggest movie chain in the world. They were teetering with debt, and everybody was saying, how are they going to service that debt? What are they doing? And then the House of Cards collapsed with covid they now owe a lot of money to a lot of a uh, lot of people that they borrowed money when they were expanding. They've got debt to their employees. The family that controls Cineworld did not want to declare bankruptcy because that meant their stock would be diluted. But they now have officially restructured under Chapter 11. Are people worried? What's going on there? What's happening? Well, they haven't officially restructured yet. They're in the process of it. Well, so they, they have, declared bankruptcy. They though. declared bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. officially. Uh, and, you know, they also tried to buy Cineplex right as the pandemic hit. Like in 2019, they, they tried to buy Cineplex. Then, of course, when the pandemic hit and everything closed, they went, oh, no, just kidding. We, they, we don't really want you. We weren't even thinking of that. <laughs> right. And then so Cineplex in Canada, Canada's largest uh, circuit, sued them. And one in court, they won about 900, a judgment of 950 million US dollars and not 1.2 billion Canadian dollars. And they're appealing it. And everybody said, how are they going to possibly pay this money when the, the company now, because of all of its debt, is worth only 150 million dollars? Like they can't. Yeah, you can't pay 950 when you're. And as you mentioned, the, the family that owns it, the Gridinger family, didn't want to file, even though that would have kind of wiped away a lot of their real estate debt. Uh, and they don't owe money to employees except what they owe each week, but they haven't been paying their you know past due pandemic rent. They haven't been paying their September rent. And, and they're like, before you pay investors, you got to settle up with the little people. Right. And so they, when they de- declared and, and officially filed, they secured a loan for $1.9 billion. And on their first day in court, the judge went, wait, what are you doing with that $1.9 billion? You're going <laughs> to use it to pay down back debt to other lenders. Yeah, no, we're going to not do that. You can only have $785 million, number one. Uh, number two, and this is, I think, the, the killer, anybody that lends money to you does so at 20%, at a return of 20%, that's kind of a killer. And number three, you have to pay your employees. So as far as Cineplex is concerned, they think they're still going to get paid somehow. But that's the thing. Cineworld now gets to go and renegotiate all of those all of those leases that it doesn't necessarily want to be in uh, and or it gets to abandon those theaters without any repercussions. Well, there's always repercussions, but they get to abandon some theaters if they want to. Uh, and they're renegotiating all their contracts and they're, and they're going to have to settle with Cineplex for a lot less. Of course, that means everybody gets diluted and that includes the Gridingers, although they do seem to be remaining in charge of the company. Award, give them an award for managing to survive under really bad circumstances when you really screwed up. Uh, good for them. But it is award season. We'll talk about the Emmys later. Uh, but that's happening for movies as well. Hugh Jackman is out of The Music Man. The show is on hiatus this week because he's touring the festival circuit with his new film, The Sun. He'll be back on Broadway next week. The Laura Poitras documentary is making waves in Venice. Her film won the Golden Lion Top Prize. It's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and it's about the opioid crisis as seen through artist Nan Golden and her activism and art and how they combine and how she's been fighting and agitating against uh, the, the opioid crisis. I'm really interested 
interested to see it. I like Citizen Four a lot. Uh, it sounds like a really cool doc, and docs don't usually win the top prize at film festivals like Venice, so that's very cool to see. Other big winners are the actors Kate Blanchett in Tar and Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inisherin. Or I'm not sure how to say that. Inisherin. I haven't seen a trailer yet. Uh, haven't oh been my to gosh. Ireland in ages. I should have looked that up. That that trailer's been around for ages. It's like. You know, it's a, uh, it's, I mean, look, it's the, the people from in Bruges, right? It's like everybody yes. back from in Bruges. So exactly. So it's a, that's a very good underappreciated film. Everybody should check out in Bruges and then check out this new movie, the Banshees. I'll just call it the Banshees for short when it comes out. Of course, you may not be able to see it. If you're in the middle East, there is a lot of censorship going on there. It's not easy to do business in the middle East. We often hold people's feet to the fire. Don't kowtow to Japan or China or some country that wants to tell you what you can put in your movie or not put in your movie, but it gets difficult sometimes. A lot of Arab countries are demanding that streamers remove content they deem offensive. You want to do business in our country? Get rid of that show. So far, seven Gulf Arab nations have written to Netflix demanding it remove content they say is against societal values. Uh, we're talking Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman. This follows on similar calls against Disney Plus and other streamers. The problem here, they're not saying take out this show or that episode. They're just like, eh, in general, we want to make sure you get rid of the stuff we don't like. <laughs> it's very vague. Now, Disney is not including the Pixar film Lightyear or the series Baymax, which has some queer characters in those countries. And... Netflix is like, well, what exactly do you want us to do? And should we do it? Will we anger our filmmakers? Will we anger our audiences in other countries if we allow ourselves to remove certain shows from these countries? It's a balancing act. And they certainly didn't get that balance right in Egypt when they made their first film for Egypt. It was an original movie from Netflix called Perfect Strangers and it had a racy moment with a woman removing underwear from underneath her skirt. You didn't see anything, but you knew she'd taken off her underwear. And another scene where a male character came out as gay, and Egypt was like, this is not the movie we want. <laughs> We're talking the government and the far right. We're not talking all Egyptians, but that was problematic for them. So not easy to find the right balance in the Middle East, that's for sure. I'm not sure what they should or shouldn't do, but you certainly don't like them. To, you, know, you wish they could say, look, nobody has to watch those shows. We have parental controls. Deal with it. But if they did, they'd probably be blocked from uh, those countries. I don't know. It's a lot to deal with. I've been watching The Queen nonstop, and last night I really needed a break, so I turned on the television, and all I saw were reruns, Sperling. I don't know about you, but reruns after reruns. Now, we waited till Tuesday to record this show because we wanted to watch the Emmys on Monday night, but they ran the rerun of last year's Emmys or two years ago. That's right. That's right. Succession won again for Best Drama. Ted Lasso won again for Best Comedy. Last week with John Oliver won again for the seventh time in a row for best talk shows. Saturday Night Live won again for best sketch show. At least in that case, there's only one other show it's competing against, uh, but that's six years in a row, and it's won it more than anybody else ever. It gets Zendaya won again for Euphoria. Julia Garner won again for Ozark. Gene Smart won again for Hacks. Brett Goldstein won again for Ted Lasso, and on and on and on. Some some things were broken down, some changes happened, some records were set, but oh my God, it felt exhausting. You know, I do wonder if someone like John Oliver will say, you know what, I've won the award seven times. I'm going to take last week tonight out of the running and just not submit it next year. He should. But you know, then there's, there's going to be a new guy on your writing team who's never won an Emmy 
next year, say, and they're like, well, God, I sure would like to have won an Emmy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you're cheating them out of it. So it's hard because you have those people who are below the line. It's not just him. It's a big team of people. They come in and they come out and those new people deserve their chance in a way. It's just, it's not John Oliver doing it wrong. It's the Emmys that's doing it wrong. Though people like Bill Cosby, he didn't even compete for acting awards on the Cosby show. I believe he never submitted himself. He just didn't want to be involved in the competition, which is like at some point, if you've won enough, it's like, yeah, you know, Kelsey Grammer after five, you could say, yeah, you know what? I've had enough, <laughs> but that ain't going to happen. Now the Emmys happened. It was a little tiresome with the reruns. There were some fun wins, of course. You know, you're, you're mentioning all these, these shows that, that have won again and again, which I agree with, by the way. I think it's kind of silly. Uh, but in a way, I kind of understand because I'm beginning to think that maybe uh, my whole, con- my whole uh, theory or my whole strategy. Pr- strategy of just waiting until these series end and then binging them on Netflix or Hulu or wherever they're, they're streamed is a bad idea because I'm watching the Emmys last night and I'm like, what show is that? Abbott, what? What the heck is Ozark? I'm like, you know, <laughs> of course well, I do. That explains it. why... Better Call Saul, one of the most acclaimed shows of the past five years, has not won a single Emmy. Maybe everybody in the Emmy voting category said, I'll just wait till it's done. <laughs> so yeah. the Emmys happened. I thought the show was poorly done. I guess we're sort of used to it. Some of the some of the award speeches were actually pretty good. I'm not sure having the thank you scroll helped a lot, but it was a nice try. But what did you think about the Emmys airing on a Monday? Well, first of all, you mentioned the speeches. I did want to point out uh, and of course, now I'm uh, forgetting her name. Cheryl Lee uh, Ralph of Dreamgirls Sh- fame. Yes, yes. So, so she's 65. She sang a 65 year old song, Diana Reeves or Diane Reeves. Diane Reeves. Sorry. Yeah. Of course, uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph. She, you mentioned, she's got musical theater background. She got up on stage, completely shocked and surprised. Sang "Endangered Woman." Did a great job. Had the entire audience eating out of her hand and gave a rousing speech. It was one of the best. Uh, thank you speeches ever, in my opinion. She is 66 years old, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, well, it was good. Said, what did you think about the show airing on Monday nights? That happens when NBC is the host. It rotates between the major networks. And when NBC gets it, they're like, yeah, we got Sunday Night Football. We're going to put it on Monday. I didn't think it was too bad, but I can understand why most people don't like it. It's, it's very disruptive to the industry itself. And people got to work on Monday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, Oh, yeah, no, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. they got to work. They're like, oh, you know, it's a pain in the neck. So also, it spoils all the events that lead up to the Emmys. Uh, there are, you know, benefits and charities and special dinners and things that happen all weekend long. And so being on a Monday means those have to happen on Sunday rather than Saturday. And it's just a big pain. Do, do you think... This is great. Do you think maybe they should move it to Saturday? At least on Saturday, there would be no competition, unlike Sunday, Monday, and every other day of the week. I don't know about that. I don't know about, uh, you know, Saturday. I think that just leave it on Sunday. It's a yeah. nice way to wrap up the week and get prepared for the, for the new week. Well, it's also a, a nice way for people who, you know, are busy. <laughs> it may be Sunday night. It may be Thursday night. That doesn't mean people are watching the Emmys because they can tape it. They can watch it whenever they want it. Uh, but, you know, with all the shows they could have honored, like Only Murders in the Building, Better Call Saul, Severance, Yellow Jackets, they were shockingly consistent, even when shows don't air every year. So, like, they couldn't give it to Succession last year, but you feel like they would have 
It just didn't air. So they're like, it's been every two years for, or Zendaya for Euphoria. It's like, oh my God, you know, like they're, what do you call lockstep voting is just kind of shocking. But are people paying attention? I don't know. Are the Emmys actually helping people find and discover new shows? What is their job? They're supposed to celebrate the best of television. But when Ted Lasso has a meh second season and people are like, it was still good, but no, not nearly the acclaim of the first season. And there's so many other good shows like Abbott Elementary with Cheryl Lee Ralph, like Only Murders in the Building, like what's the Shadows one called? Uh, what we do in the showers. What we do in the shower. Somebody actually said yesterday, uh, uh, you know, what we do in the showers, which I thought would be a much better show. To <laughs> no, be that's on the uh, Bravo Network, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah, what is the role of the Emmys? I don't know. They don't think they know. Yeah, I think that uh, you know it's to help people. Uh, you know, discover new shows. I discovered Al- Abbott Elementary. My kids have been telling me to watch it. Oh, now it's I'm going to go watch it. Yeah, it's a I'm good. Go it's a good three. You know, classic sitcom. Well, classic. It's you know a faux documentary, but it's a it's a fun, well done network show. That's for sure. And people are discovering the Sandman last week against our better nature. We started reporting on self reported ratings. So like. Amazon Prime told us how big the Lord of the Rings debut was. The Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power on their Prime, you know, streaming service. HBO told us how popular House of Dragons was. And we went with those numbers because they're such big shows and big franchises. We have reporting on The Sandman, which airs on Netflix. In its third week, two and a half weeks now, I think uh, um, it dropped on 8-3. So, mm, yeah, I think it's been two and a half weeks now. This week, 1.3 billion minutes reviewed. Last week, 1 billion minutes viewed. So growing that second to third week is a really good sign for the show. All the episodes are available. People clearly want to watch this show. Word of mouth seems good. Uh, House of Dragons had the tiniest drop from like 10.3 million viewers in the instant first second of viewing to 10.2 million. But it was the first time there'd been a, a drop in viewership. But other than that, HBO Max... And Amazon are suddenly very quiet about the numbers for their shows. So unless they give us more information, we're going to have to assume that House of Dragons and the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, have fallen off a cliff. Yeah, well, I think that uh, they, they do. If they're, they started it that way, they, they really should continue that way. Otherwise, uh, people will, as you, assume, as you say, assume that uh, the ratings are kind of falling off and not a big deal. Oh, it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story? Well, since you listen to our show, you've probably heard us mention Coco Melon. Uh, we've mentioned it in the past. That's a TV show for toddlers that's become a phenomenon for Netflix. The new season just dropped last week, and the series is always among the most streamed shows around week after week after week, although I've never watched it, so, you know. You're not four. Uh, well, you know. In, in fact, by the way, li- of licensed shows, you have Criminal Minds at number one. You got Coco Melon at number two, and then Grey's Anatomy at number three, so it's sandwiched in between those other two shows. That's pretty good. That's heady company, in fact. Thank God my kids are older, or I would never be able to get that song Baby Shark out of my head, especially (laughs) since I just realized three seconds ago that Baby Shark came from Coco Melon. I did not know that. Uh, As you can imagine, this hugely popular series has spun off all sorts of merchandise. We're talking games. We're talking toys, dolls, and now, that's right, video games. Yep. You know, Coco Melon, play with 
JJ is the name of the, the video game. It's a new game. It comes out October 28th on the Nintendo Switch. It costs $40, and that's a lot of milk money, okay? <laughs> and its target audience is kids two to four. Oh, and their parents. And it's a first-person shooter. <laughs> no, I know it assuming. is not. No, no. Oh, it's okay. a first-person rattler. <laughs> oh, ooh, you know what? I like that. Uh, is this a smart extension or a bridge too far? Big dealer, big whoop. It's, it's a big whoop, I hope. It makes you go, ew, a video game targeting two-year-old children. That's just creepy. And I have to give a shout-out to one of our listeners, Linda Perme. She sent me in the link to this story I had missed about Cocomel in the video game, but Linda saw it and knew we would want to hear about it, and she sent it to us. So thank you, Linda, for doing that. Everybody should reach out to us, shouldn't they, Sperling? Yes, you can reach us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Write to us. Call us. We'll read your email on our uh, on our future program or, or play your, your voicemail. You can also reach us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Well, now that I've told you how to contact us, uh, you know what? Why don't we move on to Mubi, the streaming website Mubi. And in real, Mubi, think Criterion Channel, but it's way more esoteric than that. <laughs> it, they have big plans. At a public interview in Toronto, company head F.A. Cackerel held forth. They have data that distributors like Sony Picture Classics simply don't have. And if Sony bids, say, $2 million for a film, and Mubi bids, say, $3 million, and Sony then bids four. Guess what? Movie's going to bid $8 million. Game over. Ha! Because, yeah, they know how valuable a film will be, at least for them. The big change of heart came when they lost out in a bidding war for Parasite. Remember that movie, Michael? Mm -hmm. Way back? Yeah. Uh, movie realized if it wanted a film, it needed to own it from the get-go, or they'd never get the pay-one window, which is that window after theatrical. It worked on the film The Worst Person in the World, that Norwegian film from Cannes last year. Uh, so they want to be a studio, basically, and they want to be, well, an exhibitor. They're building a cinema in Mexico City and plan to be in every major city you can name. And, get this, they bought Germany's The Match Factory, a sales rep, because Mubi needed a strong sales force. They're not going to have cinemas everywhere, of course, so they'll be a studio, an exhibitor, and a streamer. So, with all that, game over! Big deal or big whoop. <laughs> okay. It feels like growing too far, too fast, getting way ahead of yourself. Mubi has 12 million members, but not every member is a paying subscriber. So we don't know how many paying subscribers they have. Mubi is available in 190 countries. I'm a subscriber. I like it. Good for them. It's not a huge library yet, but they've got stuff. Uh, you know, they're talking about they've just bought a the the con best director winner i think decision to leave by park that movie they purchased for some major territories they have it for the u.s and the uk because they said they could see uk distributors were not paying this movie what it's worth and they can make money off it so they paid quote an irrational amount of money for the movie well if you know you can make money off it then it's not irrational anyway they've got that movie it's coming out in the u.s and uk in october a lot of critical acclaim for it but when they say that they changed their whole mindset because of what happened with Parasite, that worries me because Parasite was a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. You don't make business decisions based on like Titanic or Avatar. That's not how you base, oh, look what could happen. Like Parasite was crazy. You know, that doesn't happen every day. And why in God's name do they need to build even one cinema? 
They really don't, in my opinion. They could just, I mean, there's way too many cinemas out there without content that would gladly pay, play. And movies. there's art houses and Alamo draft houses out there. And what are they not doing that movies can do? And I understand that the cinema gets 50%, roughly, let's just pretend, of a movie's uh, gross in the theaters. But is that worth buying a whole theater and having? I can see one or two or a few symbolically like IFC. You know, they're trying to do that, have it from soup to nuts. They want to make the movie. They want to exhibit it in theaters and they want to stream it in your home. I get that, but you don't want to have a lot of theaters. I don't think that makes a lot of sense, uh, but it just feels like they're getting too big too quick, but you know, good luck. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. Netflix has a few theaters too. They're, you know, they're flagship theaters. But those are like, probably- those are like vanity places. He yeah. makes it sound like they're going to have, you know, theaters all over the world. <laughs> yeah, probably not a good idea. Yeah. Now, speaking of theater, let's talk about musical theater. You kind of mentioned Hello. this. Okay, yes. Yeah, you mentioned this a little earlier. And just the other day, I was asking, like, when is Hugh Jackman going to, you know, get out of uh, The Music Man? When is his last performance? Is, is he going to be in it forever? Well, as you know, Michael, Broadway is fighting for audiences, and that fight just got a little harder because the Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster revival of The Music Man announced it will close on January 1st, despite sold-out shows. Topping the Broadway charts and often bringing in $3 million a week, the show will have run just under a year, having opened in February. Given the so-so reviews and interest was much lower when Jackman was out, the producers clearly decided that, in this case, the show was not the star. In fact, the star was the star. (laughs) And when he was gone, the show would not be the star. So the show was going to go too. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, I guess. Broadway show closes. Um, he's been there. He's supported it. He's been attached to the show for three years. It was supposed to open in the fall of 2020. It opened like 15 or so months later. So that's really hard. He's really had this on his card for a long time. He's been in it for almost a year come January. So he's done his job and they've had every chance to try to make back their money. They just didn't make a good production. If it was good enough, some new star could come in and it could keep working. Will they tour with it? Not Hugh Jackman, of course, but maybe the idea is they can use the sets on the tour and that'll save a few bucks. I don't know. But we got another hit show, Leah Michelle. She's in Funny Girl, her first week in the show. She was out for a few performances because she has COVID. Talk about drama. But even with her not in every performance, it grossed $1.6 million. That's the most the show has recorded so far. Once she's back in after getting better, good luck to her. This show's clearly going to hit the roof. Speaking of shows hitting the roof. Harry's songs, house. <laughs> yeah, songs hitting the roof. That was, that's exactly the joke I was going to make. Because in this crazy new world of streaming, it feels like every week some new record is being set. Well, this week is no different. Harry Styles, Harry's house, is on top of the world. His tour is selling like crazy, though let's face it, uh, as I mentioned last week, I am not going to pay those ticket prices over my dead... Anyway, uh, he has two movies on the, the art house circuit, really the festival circuit, including Don't Worry Darling, and his turn as a bisexual cop in My Policeman, which just got rave reviews and tiff. And now on the pop charts, his unstoppable as it was became the 13th song on the Billboard Hot 100 history to reign at number one for at least 13 weeks. And guess what? Guess what number song number three is what? on that chart? Yeah, his new song, Late Night Talking. Over on the album charts, you have Puerto Rican superstar Bad Bunny, who sees his new album stay at number one for the 10th non-consecutive week, tying Carlos Santana and seven others. Meanwhile, country star Ann Dufus, 
Morgan Whalen, or is it Wallen? Mm. He sees his album Dangerous set a record for the most weeks in the top 10 for a solo act, which sounds like one of those, an animated movie that opened on a Tuesday and not based on a fairy tale that stars a genie kind of <laughs> records. But still, 86 weeks in the top 10 is a long time, which I guess kind of makes me a bit of a doofus. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's, some of this is a big deal. Now, the album records are in the sound scan era. There have been albums at number one for more than 10 weeks, more than the ones that we listed. That's just for the sound scan era as it was being number one for 13 weeks non-consecutive by the way that is a stone cold since the beginning of the charts record and despite streaming and all the crazy things that go on now that's still a huge accomplishment so it is a big deal Goodbye, New York, and hello, Utah. Eugene Hernandez, the founder of IndieWire and in recent years the head of the New York Film Festival, is moving west. In November, Hernandez will become the festival director and head of public programming at the Sundance Institute. He'll be doing year-round programming there as well as working with others to oversee the Sundance Film Festival. Big deal or big whoop? To me, it feels like a big deal. It feels like he just got there. I mean, I know, I guess he's been at, at Lincoln Center for a number of years, but he just took over at the film festival, which to me is the big kahuna. At least that's the thing I would love to do. So it just feels like he didn't really get to leave his fingerprints on that festival because two years were messed up by COVID and now he's off to Sundance. But I guess when the iron is hot, you strike. Yeah, um, look, I mean, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy, as you know. Uh, you, Eugene has been on the program before. He's a, a, you know, we've known him since his IndieWire days. Uh, and he will probably be a good fit for Sundance. Uh, they had Tabitha Jackson there for two years. She, she had uh, taken over for John Cooper, who was there for about 10 years. They've had some long-running festival programmers. And Tabitha Jackson was really like, I was shocked that she left after only two years. So they were probably, this, this position probably became open sooner than everybody thought it would. Mm -hmm. But when it is, you gotta, you gotta take it because those chances don't come very often. That's a little inside baseball though, but it is time for inside baseball where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Why am I talking? Because I'm going to ask the questions this time, Sperling. Welcome to the latest episode of Studio Execs Say the Darndest Things. First, the people at Warner Brothers Discovery need to work on their damage control. At a public event, CFO Gunnar Wiedenfels, that's the chief financial officer, was at a conference and he insisted the surprise shelving of Batgirl was, quote, blown out of proportion a little bit, end quote. What's the big deal? He feels given the money involved, $90 million, come on, everyone got way too agitated. <laughs> Kids, I mean execs. So was it blown out of proportion, Sperling? Uh, no, not at all. I think uh, you have several things going on here. It's $90 million, which sounds like a lot of money to you and me, but when you have $55 billion in debt, <laughs> you know, I guess that's chump change. Uh, it makes the cinema world debt look like, uh, you know, lunch money. Um, that said, uh, I get that, you know, the CFO, it's such a CFO thing to say. Oh, because God, he's, yes. He's basically saying, well, we got $45 million back in tax write-off, so that's already saving yeah, 45 it's, And it's a rounding error, people. Come on. And, and we're not going to have to promote the movie, so that's a good $20 million right there that we saved <laughs> right. in marketing costs. So we're already up to $65 million, to which I'd say, yeah, and guess what? All those films that you might otherwise want to just send to HBO Max, but now we'll have to send to movie theaters because every creative, whoever works for you again on a movie will say, 
there will be penalties for ditching the film. There will be penalties for not putting it on theatrical, uh, you know, redistributing it theatrically. And people might not want to work with you. Yeah. People might not want to work with you because you're seen as unfriendly to artists. And Warner Brothers, historically, the studio was very, very artist friendly. Mainly, this is just a CFO who's a little clueless about how it's going to play in the press. But the problem here is not the decision. That's separate. The problem is knowing the blowback from what they did, knowing how angry and upset creatives were and people were, even if you felt privately, oh, it's being blown out of proportion, publicly you should be saying, even the CFO, uh, we understand how concerned people are and we take our artists very, you know, that's what you should be saying. Not, oh, for God's sakes, it's all blown out of proportion. Anyway, even former execs can get silly. Former Disney honcho Bob Iger, he's a big silly boy too. He said linear TV will die someday. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know what, Michael? Also, um, the sun will rise tomorrow, whether there are clouds in the sky or not. So you can put that in the bank. And the sun will die out and shrivel to nothing someday. When you don't, when you don't say within three years or five years, when you don't even bother to put a timeline on, it's like, well, so what? And he's not talking about TV so much as linear TV. People sitting down and having a, a major network program something that's airing at 8 p.m. And if you want to watch it, you sit down and you watch it at 8. Now, he says that's kind of dead. Obviously, he doesn't watch sports. Because <laughs> if that comes even to streamers, streamers like Amazon are now showing football live with ads. But is the era of linear TV over? I certainly do not sit down to watch Abbott Elementary. I click record. The show is there. When I'm ready to watch an episode or two, I will sample it and watch it. That's how I watch TV. I, I haven't watched an ad for years, if I can help it. I used a VHS player. Then I used a recordable DVD player. Now I use a DVR and the cloud, and I love it. I have not watched linear TV, but it's still there. Do you think there's no world for that anymore? I think it will slowly fade away. It might take 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, but it's, I think that idea of programming prime time, you know, maybe they'll do it just because there will be people, still people using it. But most people I think will just pick the shows that they, they watch and, and put them on, on screen. Just remember, not everybody has a DVR or uses it. Not True. everybody had VCRs. You know, you think everybody did. I know I did, but that's just not how the world works. There's always people who just want to plop themselves down and watch some TV and I'd have to think about it. Maybe they'll channel surf and that's it. You know what? There's still a world for basic cable. All True. those channels showing stuff. There's money to be made there and that's going to continue for a long time. Don't ignore that extra couple billion dollars you make from basic cable and network television. It's useful. Anyway, Bob got really, really Yoda on this. He said he was opining about the world. He said this is an age of great anxiety. He said of the industry overall because this is an era of great transformation. <laughs> and of course, with great transformation comes great. No, 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 wait, that's great power. What comes with great transformation? <laughs> well, I thought it was, you know, when, when I heard him say this or read about him saying this in uh, one of the trades, I kind of was like, wow, he sounds like a, a guru, some kind of mystic or something. <laughs> but I think you hit the nail on the head. It sounds very Yoda-ish. Great anxiety we have. That's right. Anyway, Uh, it's so vague, it's silly. But he then did make a really bold prediction. Forget the linear TV with no deadline. Forget an age of great anxiety, which you could say during the 1400s, too, or pretty much any era you're alive. He did also say, quote, I don't think movies ever return to the level they were at pre-pandemic. He talked about the permanent scars suffered since March of 2020, since most of the world shut down from COVID. Quote, 
Competition, choice, it replaces movie going, Iger explained, of where he believed consumers are actually at, despite the best hopes and prayers of many studio execs. So, are movies dead? Uh, yes. Oh my God. Yes, totally. Uh, <laughs> you know, definitely they're going to be buried next to Marilyn Monroe. Tell it uh, to Tom no. Cruise. Yeah, I was going to say, look at Tom Cruise. Look at my daughter going to see a 10-year-old movie for one day only in, in a sold-out auditorium that was not necessarily a huge hit in theaters originally. But it was, was a hit. hit. It was a hit. Oh, it made really? good okay. money. Yeah, no, it was a hit. It spawned multiple sequels. Yeah, good point. I thought that was because of the uh, aftermarket. The you know. The no, 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 no. It was a hit out of the box. Oh, okay. I I stand corrected. Uh, But, you know, I think when you have, you know, No Way Home available for months on streaming and on, on, uh, you know, Blu-ray and different services and VOD, and yet it's still beating out new releases, uh, and and I granted it's a Spider-Man movie, but still, come on. You know, by the way, 2019, a record box office year. Uh, Broadway set a record grosses, I believe, in 2019 as well, or that 2018, 2019 seasons, because 2019 bled into 2020. But anyway, people were flocking to the movies. Record years. They've all, our whole time we've been doing the show, they predict the end of movies. Nobody's going to go to the movies. Nobody cares about movies. Movies are dead. And yet they keep making more and more money. Ticket sales keep increasing with population. They don't explode. But this is what we've been talking about a long time. Nothing has changed since 2019 people have not suddenly lost the desire to go to the movies and see a good film what's the one thing that has changed this year from years past well streaming services and the pandemic no this year right now when you go to the oh, movies what's fewer changed? movies there's fewer, fewer movies. movies because we had a pandemic <laughs> they haven't yeah. been able to make the movies the pipeline is a little empty so next year you got a full pipeline? It'll probably be maybe another year after that. But 2023, I think, will be a great year at the box office. And 2024, there's no reason why movies would not be as big as ever. I mean, people like movies. They like going. And you know what? In 2019, you could sit at home, watch a Blu-ray, watch a movie on demand, watch 500 channels of cable. That's not that much different from streaming. It isn't. They paid for it. They had it. They could have sat at home and never gone to the movie theater again, but they did, and they will continue to do so. But it's not just studio execs. Investors also say the darndest things. Attack Dog investor Daniel Loeb made big noises a couple weeks ago. Why does Disney own ESPN? God, they should just sell it off and use the money to make more streaming content. Duh. Now, well, unfortunately, he, he must not have realized that it is, you know, sports are content. Just ask ask Amazon and Apple. It's the most expensive content there is. And why are Amazon and Apple buying sports content in particular? Because then they can corner the market on it and people will have to subscribe to their service. That's right. It's very useful. And what's the best sports content brand out there in the entire world? ESPN or the NFL. (laughs) Right. Or, Or FIFA. Those are the, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are, you know, ML, but yeah. So Bob Chapek, uh, a couple of weeks later, was saying, yeah, you know, when people thought we might want to sell ESPN, we had about 100 people lining the block to say, hey, we'll happily buy it from you. <laughs> and now Daniel Loeb has had an about face. Now he says, well, now I understand much better how Disney wants to incorporate ESPN into its bundle and, and make it all work together. Because before... It was explained to him, how could he possibly know that sports is hugely popular, reaches men, is big all over the world, brings in huge audiences, and would be really good part of a package where you have family-friendly programming, uh, adult shows and Disney, uh, Marvel and Star Wars, and then Hulu and 
ESPN. Who wouldn't think that that might not be a good mix? Just like you have on network TV where you have Sunday Night Football and then you have the wonderful world of Disney. I mean, what a goofus. <laughs> I mean, does he not watch sports? It's like, how could you think ESPN was a thing you should offload? How is that not part of a useful media empire? Uh, anyway, uh, Bob Iger, by the way, just joined a venture capital firm because he doesn't have quite enough money yet, I guess. He makes it sound like he's doing charity work, though. He said, quote, uh, about joining Thrive, this venture capital firm, I have long believed that by harnessing and advancing technology, we can transform businesses and ultimately change our world for the better. And this is exactly what Thrive intends to do. And I'm excited to join them in this important endeavor. Did End he just quote. say Endeavor twice? I think he did. He did. Maybe oh. he wants to work for Endeavor. Did he just go to the Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa? No. He joined a venture capital firm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Make the, the world venture a better place. That's why people join venture capital, to make the world a better place. <laughs> well, the, the reality is that venture capital is, you know, it's, it's a hard market right now to be in venture capital. I guess, uh, though, maybe not, you know, he, he can help raise those kinds of funds, but uh, that seems to be drying up VC funds, yes, at least for tech companies. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a tough time. It's also a tough time for jazz fans. Uh, we're in our obituary section. Jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis, a Grammy winner, died at 87. He had a flukish period of pop hits. He was a well-respected jazz pianist with his great trio. And then suddenly in the mid-60s, he had an out-of-left-field hit with a song called The In Crowd. It was from a live album, and that song was a cover of an R&B tune, a jazz instrumental cover. The plan was not to have a big hop, pop hit, but that's what happened. It went to number five and sold a million copies, and he won a Grammy. Then he did it again with what was clearly intended to be a pop crossover, a cover of Hang On Sloopy, that goofy pop song. Okay, that was intentional. Uh, also did it again, won a Grammy, sold a million copies. He had a big hit with Wade in the Water and a cover of the a Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. So... It was a weird couple years, but then things fell back down to normal. But he had a great career, a long career as, a, as an artist, and he also hosted radio shows, including Smooth Jazz Show and a show about the legends of jazz, which led to a PBS series that lasted 13 episodes and had big names. He really brought attention to the history of jazz, so he had a great career. Well, also dying, of course, uh, was Peter Straub. I know you must know a lot about him. He was an author and really a reluctant horror novelist. He died at the age of 79. Yeah, he hated being called a horror novelist, but that's what he's most famous for. His poetry didn't sell. His literary fiction didn't sell. And he's like, I really want to make some money. I really don't want to have to work. <laughs> and so he wrote a novel called Julia about a woman haunted by a ghost that may or may not be her dead daughter. So it claimed to be her dead daughter, but was it her dead daughter? And it came in an interesting period. There was a real resurgence in the writing of horror in fiction in the late 60s, early 70s. It started with uh, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, and then boom, in the mid-70s. Stephen King put out Carrie in 74. Peter Straub did Julia in 1975. And Anne Rice did Interview with the Vampire in 1976, Horror would never be the same. Uh, he did lots of other books. Maybe his masterpiece is Ghost Story from 1979. Uh, that's a cool book. Stephen King always said he was a better writer than King, and the, even though they collaborated on two books together. And the nice thing about Ghost Story is it gave him a little prestige because it was turned into a movie with one of the more distinguished casts imaginable. It starred Fred Astaire, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Melvin Douglas, and John Houseman. It may have been a horror film, but it sure was classy. 
Well, and uh, I th- I was surprised that you didn't start off with Bernard Shaw, the the you know not necessarily in entertainment but a newsman. He's, he died at the age of eighty two, uh, and he was one of the first employees of CNN. That's right. He was the chief anchor of the twenty four hour news channel when it launched on June first, nineteen eighty. He was a Marine who had a lifelong fascination with the media. He started in local TV in Chicago, moved to D.C., became a White House correspondent, worked his way up the ladder at CBS and then ABC. Ultimately, he was the Capitol Hill senior correspondent. Then he gambled. He took a big gamble on Ted Turner's nutty idea of a 24-hour news channel. What would they talk about for 24 hours of them? That's crazy. And he became the most high-profile news person of color in U.S. history at the time and arguably the most significant one to this day. We got Lester Holt on NBC right now, has been on air for seven years doing NBC Lightning News. Uh, we've got Ed Bradley, of course, was on CNN, on CBS 60 Minutes, but Bernard Shaw led the way, a, a, a really great career. And of course, you can remember one of his breakthroughs. Yeah, you know, I was actually surprised. I went back and revisited the day that uh, Ronald Reagan was shot in, a, you know, in Washington, D.C. He, he uh, you know, an assassination attempt. And I, I was interested in seeing how the format has changed very little between 1981. (laughs) You know, they broke into the news coverage to show Ronald Reagan giving his speech the way they break into news coverage now to show a president giving a speech. Then they went back to their news reports and then they broke in again. And there was Bernard Shaw saying, uh, shots were fired. Uh, right. And we just, it's like, wow, it's like the same exact thing, but we have better technology now. Well, and that was really what helped make CNN. People realized when there was breaking news, they could stay with the story. They delivered quality journalism. Thanks in no small part to Bernard Shaw. And it, it worked and it became a huge uh, factor all over the world. Later highlights of his career include uh, moderating a debate between Michael Dukakis and George Bush in 1988, as well as reporting on the Gulf War from Baghdad. He was sheltering under a desk as cruise missiles shot overhead, and he said on air pretty famously, clearly I've never been there, but this feels like we're in the center of hell. (laughs) And he was probably like, please beam me up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And finally... Uh Mm-hmm. The finally yeah, a giant Jean-Luc- of cinema. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, yeah, giant of cinema. That's all you can really say. Jean-Luc Godard, he died today at the age of 91. Uh, almost uh, on schedule for us because uh, he actually did it himself. He died by assisted suicide, which is such a Jean-Luc Godard way to die. <laughs> I think it is too. Uh, he began as a film critic, of course, at Cahiers du Cinema alongside Francois Truffaut and others. They led the French new wave, upturning film conventions everywhere they went while celebrating the genre American films and directors that they loved. At the same time, the hip cachet of their films and the promise of more sex and nudity than the films actually delivered helped create the art house cinema phenomenon, a huge thing in the 60s. People were like, oh my God, we have to go see these French films. This is so exciting. Uh, they were cool. They were hip. His influence is immeasurable among his major films, of course, Breathless, Contempt, Band of Outsiders, Alphaville, Two or Three Things I Know About Her, Tuva Bien, Hail Mary, and so many others. Despite loving gangster movies and directors like John Ford, who were previously overlooked, Godard had contempt for commercial cinema in general. And that's why I never liked him. I always preferred Francois Truffaut. He was more humane. He loved movies, all kinds of movies. He appeared in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, while Godard practically spat at Spielberg at Cannes. <laughs> Not like Harry Styles, but kind of. And he was like, cinema, movies, Hollywood. Bah. And so I never liked him. And then I would see his movies, and I'd be like, oh, well, that was a really great movie. Oh, 
that was a really great movie too. <laughs> so I have to admit, maybe now he's my favorite over Truffaut. I, I will never forget, you know, first of all, Godard was always in Cannes. Uh, there'd be fist fights outside his, uh, his screenings, you know, when they you had to get in. You had to get in. You had to get in. And then people would like walk out. They'd like sit through the first like five <laughs> minutes and be like, this is horrible. And then he'd walk out. Cause it was, was past, it was past his prime, past his prime. Yeah. And so I, I'll never forget sitting in the Grand Theater Lumiere. They, I guess Ken went, well, we better put him in the biggest theater now, but we don't want fights breaking out again. Uh, and so it was a 3D movie, Goodbye to Language. Oh, right. And, and uh, he purposefully, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a box office pro piece right now on best practices for projecting 3D. And one of the big problems with 3D is alignment, where the, the image for the left eye is going to the right eye and the image for the right eye is going to the left eye. Now, if it's always like that, it causes fatigue, but it doesn't hurt you. What, what uh, Godard did was he had the left eye, he had it aligned properly through half, half through the film. And then for like 30 seconds, he reversed the alignment <laughs> so that, but he did it like almost live. Like so, a, like, it, a like, cut, like a hard cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, a, like a wipe. And everybody, all 2,000 attendees <laughs> at once Start groaned and yanked their <laughs> the glasses off their head, and he did it on purpose because <laughs> if you do it like that, then your eyes, being muscles, have a reflexive move. Like, ah! And yeah, exactly. It and sounds like I, something I, Gaspar Noe would do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, I actually, it's annoying, but I kind of respect you for doing that. <laughs> that's that's Godard in a nutshell. But really, if you haven't seen some of his major films like Breathless and Contempt, uh, you really must. And you really must listen to our show every week. And one way to do that is to make sure you subscribe to our show in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can rate and review the show in some of those aggregators. It helps us out when you do. We're also on Spotify. Don't think you can rate and review us on Spotify, though. Uh, you know what? Please do subscribe to the show. It does help us out when you do, and it helps us out when you rate and review us. Remember, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Uh, you can also call toll-free and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. All of that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Well, this week it's TV is dead. Long live TV. Dot com. I think you mean the queen or the king or the... Well, it eh. depends on... Yeah. Um... You know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on Celluloid Junkie. And guess what? Uh, Patrick Von Sikowski reminded me that today is our 15th anniversary. Oh, so, congratulations, CJ. And will well, there be a show next week? There will be a show next week. We'll talk and about fact, CJ even more. Yes. In fact, until next week, play nice. Oh, uh-huh.